WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote, and this is roughly about the most you're going to hear from me in the next hour. This is our FlameCon episode. Uh, you may remember we did one of these back in, uh, well, I guess it was 2019, huh? Uh, anyway, yeah, Matt went to FlameCon uh, this year. Uh, his return post uh, mid pandemic, I guess. I, the words, you know, what are they? What are they even? Doesn't matter. The point is, Matt went to FlameCon uh, and he talked to some great folks. So, over the course of the next hour, you're going to hear interviews with uh, Moon Girl co creator Amy Reeder, uh, Cerebro co host Connor Goldsmith, uh, Jarrett Melendez, uh, Josh Trujillo, who co created uh, Aaron Fisher, the Captain America of the Railways, uh, Kat Calamia. And uh, one of the organizers, uh, Steve from FlameCon, who talks a little bit about the process of bringing the show back uh, after a couple years away. So I hope you enjoy, and I'm going to shut up now. We're at FlameCon. We sure are. First interview of the day. It's exciting. It's new. It's great. It's Amy Reader. Hi, hey, Amy. Hey, how's it going? Oh, going fine. Uh, Granted, it's only been here for an hour, but how's right? your FlameCon been so far? So far, so good. I think people are still feeding in, you know, crowd control and all that. <laughs> yes. But uh, no, it looks very shiny and exciting in there. And uh, I am I have new stuff for the con specifically, so that makes me excited. What did you bring in? Um, well, I ended up doing some covers for Pride. And so... Um, so I decided to do prints of those. And then I also uh, decided just randomly, you know how like there's too many enamel pins in the world, um, as I can see on your bag. <laughs> um, well, I was like, I still kind of want to make something, but maybe not a pin. So then I came up with these like pendants and they're like friendship Oh. necklace type pendants but it's two girls kissing oh, so <laughs> uh or two people personages i guess like it could i i tried to make it semi-flexible a little bit but anyway uh yeah so i don't know it's kind of fun i'm just trying new things because honestly like i feel like at this point i'm starting to become an older hand at this and there's all these young people and i want them to like me <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how. Yeah. Like I and I'm so I'm looking at everybody else else's booths and kind of being like, what's the secret? How do I get these people to love me? <laughs> well, you, you, at least in my case, you've cornered the cranky old guy contingent. Yeah. So there you go. Aw, thanks. <laughs> well, that's welcome. good. Those are they are always welcome in my world. <laughs> Excellent. Have you been doing a lot of cons since the dark times, or are you just sort of getting back into the swing right now? You know, I think I've been doing more than average compared to other people like i um let's see i've been doing i think this is my fifth yeah i did a few last year one this year so and it's been worked out it's been working out fine i i just like just anecdotally have not gotten sick yet from a convention so knock on wood and all that stuff but um and uh i think part of it is because I wear a mask that doesn't seep out the sides. I feel like that is actually, I think that that's a good idea to make sure that you're not wearing something that doesn't actually fit your face. But anyway, that was a huge aside. Um, we always yeah. say on our show, tangents are welcome. Okay, so we, good. We... Just a little advice to you guys out there. 
So now to the you know actual questions because yeah. you know we are here to talk about comics and yeah, such yeah. and um, one of the things that you're probably best known for is co-writing Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Indeed. And we are getting near to the debut of the animated Moon Girl and Devil oh, Dinosaur. Oh, do you know when that is? I am not sure, but I believe. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that there's been trailers, so my assumption yeah, is I think it's yeah. by the end of this this calendar. So, yeah, that would be so cool. I I feel like. I had heard release dates at one point, and they had been pushed back since then, but it really seems close. Like, I know that at San Diego they were, like, releasing clips and stuff, so that's really exciting. Yeah, so that, that was sort of the, like, how are you feeling about seeing your oh, yeah. work up on the, Great. the Disney Plus big animated screen? Oh, yeah. No, it's really cool, and I, I, I haven't really been involved with it or anything like that, but um, but I kind of like just watching it take on a life of its own. Like, I mean, Lauren Fishburne is producing it, so I don't know. I feel like it's in good hands, and I feel like they'll know best how to handle the character, and uh, and I'm just happy I got to be a part of it. You know, I feel totally flattered that it's gotten this far. Yeah, we do. New characters in superhero universes are always a hard sell, industry-wise, it seems. I mean, they are. Uh, going in, I mean, were you expecting... You got, a, you got a good run out of that book. 40... Yeah. Just around 40... Yeah, a little bit more in, than 40 issues? Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. I think 35, 40... I can't remember exactly because I, I ended up moving on uh, with issue 18 and I know that Brandon and Natasha continued right. on all the way through. Um, and I think that they might be starting her again on another t another thing with new writers and stuff, but it seems like they're really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great feeling. Uh, I definitely, I mean, I did come up with the concept for the character, so it's, it's been cool to see it take off. Obviously, like, one of the reasons that it took off was because there was not enough, uh, like, there weren't a lot of young black female characters. And I think in addition to that, she wasn't just, like, an empty, like, you know, plate. Like, she had a lot of really unique personality qualities that people weren't seeing. And um, it... Part of that for me was just like kind of noticing this blurred movement and uh, realizing how underrepresented black nerds are. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, I don't know. I just sort of felt like I should make something and I'm, I'm glad that it took off, but it kind of took off and took on a shape of its own. And again, that's part of why I'm kind of glad that black creators and black artists are taking this on as their own and, and probably doing a better job at it than I would. So, yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. So moving from young black characters to ancient white female characters, uh, oh. <laughs> I first encountered your work on Madame Xanadu. Nice. Which, nice. I mean, Matt Wagner, Ver Vertigo, this sort of forgotten Vertigo gem, yeah. in my opinion. I love that book. Oh, yeah. Uh, Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, do you have any, you know, fond, fond recollections, stories about, you know, your time working? Because that was really yeah. early in your... You're kind of Very breaking early. into mainstream yes. comics. Yeah, and you know, and I think that there's going to be a Madam X show. Or... I think she's part of the Justice League Dark series okay. that there, that Guillermo del Toro is working on. Okay, because I thought I had heard of a Madam X. 
but I'm not there's, sure. There's so many at this point, you kind of yeah, lose track. Yeah, who knows? And it might have, who even knows how these things work. But, um, but yeah, uh, no, that I feel like I get a lot of people talking to me actually about, um, about the book and about how much it meant to them, which is really cool. Um, it was definitely an amazing experience for me where I was learning on the job with every panel, you know, and, and the fact that we would change time periods every two issues was really hard. Like I'd only start getting the hang of it right at the end of the second issue each time. And, uh, but, but I also happened to like historical research and stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It was really fun. I felt like I had a lot of creative control to the credit of Matt Wagner. Um, he really let me have it feel like mine, which I think is a, an important thing. I mean, it obviously had a lot of Matt Wagner flair as well, but I think sometimes writers are a little too preoccupied with putting their mood into everything and their voice, and uh, and you end up missing out on the artist's voice your your style is wonderful and very different from that matt wagner style so yeah. it was very cool that there's a synergy between the two yeah he, styles in that book he gave a lot he really did and and that that was something that i was told going in was that he is very collaborative with artists because he's an artist himself so uh, so your time um, you recently, or some value of recently in the pandemic when time has no meaning, um, <laughs> did an Amethyst mini yes. for Wonder Comics yes. at DC. Um, how did that opportunity come about? Uh, well, I know that um, I was approached by Andy Corey, who was working on the Wonder Comics line, uh, because I guess Brian Bendis really wanted me to do a project with Wonder Comics. And so we were talking about different possibilities. and. And he mentioned that uh, Bendis would be bringing Amethyst in, and I was like, oh, I've always wanted to do Amethyst. Uh, and um, because actually, before Madame Xanadu, I even pitched an Amethyst story that didn't end up working out. And so, um, yeah, it felt like a really cool opportunity. Her name is Amy. And uh, I just felt like I'm, I get a little tired of the dark superhero stuff. And I liked that this was fantasy instead of fighting as much. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I just, um, it was it was a cool opportunity and they kind of let me do whatever I want wanted, which I think that was the one thing is that people who are really into continuity were like, I don't know what to make of this. And that's probably my fault. I wanted to just do it how I wanted to do it and not have to worry about other people's storylines to be completely honest. Continuity is a tool. It is not the <laughs> uh, rigid guideline, or it shouldn't be. Well, and in my defense, I, I also made her more like the original than a lot of people had been doing, because I felt like the original was really good. So, yeah. Last question. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything coming up that you can speak about? <laughs> no, I don't. I have, I, well, I'll just say that I'm working on a, a period romance that'll be in the book market because I really want to try something different, you know? Uh, and I love romance. So cool. it'll be hot. It'll be 
you know, that like slow growing, like, oh, you're killing me kind of kind of story. <laughs> Great. Well, yeah. I, uh, I look forward to it. And I think our, our listeners will, too. Thank you very much for your time, Amy. Thank you. Have a great rest of your con. Yeah, you too. W-N-Q-A. So we are here at FlameCon with Connor Goldsmith. Connor, how's your con going so far? It's going great. Uh, it's my first con as an invited guest, which is really <laughs> crazy and different. I mean, I've, I've done many cons as a fan. I've also done a lot of cons as an agent with clients in my day job. But I've like I'm usually the one running around like, do you need any water or something? And now people are asking me if I need any water, which is a very different experience. But I'm I'm enjoying it, and I'm I'm I've had a lot of water. Excellent. So, how you did you panel earlier with Jay Edited? Yes. How'd that go? I think it went well. I was really nervous, uh, but the audience was, I mean, it was packed, which was crazy. I, I, it's hard. I started this show uh, during lockdown, so it was just, it's very hard for me still to recognize, you know, I see the numbers. It's like 25,000 people downloaded this this week, and I'm like, that's a big number. But then meeting them in real life is like really shocking to me every time for some reason. <laughs> so people keep coming up to the table, and I'm like, wow, like, Thank you. <laughs> and they all want to thank me, which is, and I'm like, for talking to a mic, you know, it's, but I get it. I get it. I mean, I have, I have podcasts that I love the way that they love mine. So I, it's just, it, it's exciting to talk to people who feel that way. Um, and, and the panel was just to like hear people making jokes with each other about like inside jokes from my podcast in the audience. It's just crazy. It, it feels so good to be, I, I love this con. FlameCon's my favorite con and it just, it always feels so good to be, you know, with friends, like queer friends and gay friends and trans friends in particular, which is where I feel like most at home. And so this con has always been a really delightful experience whenever I've gotten to come. And so to be asked to be a guest was really flattering and, and it just feels great to be here. I'm curious, did you see an appreciable jump in your numbers after the Times profile? Um, I would say like the analytics on that are still, because that was pretty recent. Mm -hmm. So I'm like still, I would say the biggest jumps I've had are, have been like when Spencer Ackerman and I did the Magneto episode and Ezra Klein promoted that and Jake Tapper and like some other like very famous people uh, were like, this is great because Spencer has a Pulitzer. Like he knows these actual journalists who were like, you know, cause he is one. Um, that was a big jump. And then the other actually really big jump was when I guest hosted Jay and Miles, um, which was was very kind of Jay to invite me to do. It was, I mean, it was very kind of Jay to be on the show early on when it was still, you know, just someone's podunk show. <laughs> I mean, now it's become bigger than I ever thought it would be. And uh, there's a there's a tension and nervousness to that, but it's also very exciting, and I'm I'm excited to see where it can go. I think the Times profile is. It, it was really exciting to do. I don't know if it's going to lead to like a big jump just because I feel like, I don't know how many people are getting their comics news from the New York Times, you know what I mean? Like, so it was very flattering and I was, I was happy to be asked. I was glad I got to talk about, you know, current political issues that 
are important to me and that I don't think the New York Times always covers very well. So uh, I wanted, you know, it was important to me to, to do that and I was glad they let me do that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to lead directly to listenership. I would say that what it really did was convince a lot of people in my life that it's like real <laughs> like my mother understands that it's real but she was like people keep texting me about the new york times profile and i was it was like yeah mom like a lot of people like this show you know um so that was nice because my mother is never in her life gonna listen to an excellent podcast and i would never <laughs> ask her to you know it's not she's a very busy attorney she like does not want to listen to me talk about candy southern for four and a half hours um my but, father's a retired whatever the hell my father would do from month to month and he would never listen to my Batman podcast. Right, exactly. So, like, it's just, go. you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask anybody to do that. But, um, yeah, no, it was, it was also, like, in my day job, like, a lot of colleagues were, like, wow. And, you know, because this is something that to them is, like, this thing I do on the side. But it's become a second job. I mean, it's become a pretty significant part of my life, which uh, I wasn't anticipating, but I love doing it. So... I'm happy. So I'm curious. It might have been something you addressed on an episode that I haven't heard yet, but I'm curious to see. Dan and I always start off an episode asking, you know, what are the first comics you remember reading? What's the first X-comic that you remember as your the X-comic that struck you? So my dad's a collector, and uh, he started me when I was, like, eight on the Marvel Masterworks. So I read, like, Giant Size and... and the 60s stuff, but I wasn't as drawn to the 60s stuff as I was to the 70s, because nobody was, let's be honest. Um, so I got canceled. But, uh, no, I mean, I was captivated by Storm immediately, like every little gay boy. Um, and then, but my era that I, like, really fell in love with when I was reading his back issues, and then it started coming out in trades when I was, like, 12, because they started doing the event trades. Like, they'd always done Dark Phoenix Saga, but they started doing, like, Mutant Massacre, Follow the Mutants, Inferno. Uh, and it's that stuff that I love the most. I mean, Inferno, you know, the joke that people make on the show is, about the show is that, like, I'm Madeline Pryor's defense attorney, um, which I am, because, like, I love pro bono because I love her journey, her arc through all that stuff. And I just love that. I love the Outback era. Like that's the stuff that really, I think stuck with me in terms of like stuff I was buying as it was coming out. It's probably Grant Morrison. Cause that was coming out when I was like 13, 14, 15. And I was like buying it with my own allowance or whatever. Um, at the time, I was, like, very confused by it. But, but as it went on, I was like, this is so good, you know? But it was such a departure. I think confused by your first ex-comic is almost a, a, a rite of passage. Well, I mean, certainly confused by a Grant, your first Grant Morrison oh, comic, I would say, is a, <laughs> is a rite of passage. Also a rite of passage. I'm a huge Morrison fan, yes. so that... Um, I do a Batman podcast. It's well, right. No, I, well, I to... well, I feel like with Morrison, with Batman, like... Morrison is very love or hate. It's, like, very polarizing. Oh, it's true. My co-host still doesn't get Morrison. Right. I mean, you know, and I, mean, I guess they're like that on any IP. Like, they're also very polarizing on X-Men, but I love it. Yeah. Oh, same. What character that you haven't covered yet are you most looking forward to covering? Do you have a particular one that... That's a great question. Um... Um, I've covered a lot of my favorites at this point, because we're, you know, 80-something episodes deep. Um, but... I haven't covered Madeline Pryor, which is something that people ask, when are you going to do it? And 
we'll see. But that is one that I will be excited about when I do it. Um, I, uh, I'm actually really excited and like simultaneously dreading getting to Apocalypse because I think he's really interesting, particularly with what Teeny Howard and Jonathan Hickman have done with him recently. Uh, but I think that he has so many bad stories that I'm just like dreading rereading all that stuff. Uh, but I, I think that talking about him as a figure, particularly in like what he represents now and what it means for like a genocidaire to be a, a figure of political importance in a new way. Like what does it mean that someone that terrible can be beneficial to this society in some way and what does it mean to ally yourself with that person and what does it mean to forgive apocalypse if that's something we can do what does it look like if apocalypse tries to atone like atonement is a question i'm always very interested in it's like very central to a lot of, of how i read this material because x-men is so often about villainous characters atoning or attempting to reform and I think that's one of the things that's really interesting. I mean, I love Emma Frost, you know, like how does, how do you, how does Emma atone for killing that girl's horse is the question we're asking right now. And I think it's an interesting question. I'm excited to see what Jerry Duggan does with it. And the, the, joy, the characters who joyfully refuse to atone, like Sinister. Or Celine, mm -hmm. you know, I love those when they're just like, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Like that's really fun too. Yeah. And Mystique and Destiny who stretch a well, lot. Yeah. What's fun with them is that they don't feel a need to, so they don't think they've done anything wrong. And like Sinister and Selene know they've done stuff that's wrong, they just don't care. But like Mystique and Destiny, as far as they're concerned, they're doing it, they're doing exactly what needs to be done. I mean, literally, because <laughs> Destiny is foreseeing, like, she's like, we have to do this or it's gonna be bad. So, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of moral complexity to the villainous characters in this franchise. And I think that's part of why people are drawn to them uh, so, so much and it's not unlike Batman, honestly. I mean, that's, I would say like the best rogues galleries in comics, apart from Spider-Man, which I've just never been a big Spider-Man person, but like he obviously has a really high quality rogues gallery, but like Batman and the X-Men are the ones where, that I would always point to. And a character like Poison Ivy, for example, is fascinating in the same way that Mystique and Destiny are fascinating because her morality is very alien to us, but also makes a lot of sense if you, think about it from her perspective, you know? Well, it's been great talking to you, Con. It's been great talking to you. Uh, Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your con. Thanks so much. Have a great time. W-N-Q-A. And here we are with Jared Melendez. Jared, how's it going? How's your con going so far? It's going so beautifully already. Um, it's been, like, steady since the doors opened, which has been really, really great. Um, yeah, having a great time talking with lots of people, uh, lots of people who've already read my book and lots of people who are just getting introduced to it here. Um, and it's just, it's been very positive all the way around. Have you been doing many cons since the returns from the Dark Times? Not that the Dark Times are over, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and will they ever be? <laughs> valid question. Uh, yeah, this is my third consecutive show. I was just at Boston Comic Con last weekend, which is my local show. Um, and I was at Gen Con the week before that with my publisher. Um, Yes, I've lost track of how many I've done this year, actually, already. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's good that we're stumbling slowly back from yeah. everything. Yeah, I'm okay with it. And, I, you know, big props to FlameCon for, you know, having a vax and mask rule. Um, you know, that, that's the easiest way to not be a super spreader event. So, Amen. Yeah. 
Uh, also, real quick, uh, another quick introduction because Jarrett is, you know, writes about cooking, uh, and that is not something. As I often say, I burn water. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a, a an extra voice, uh, f food professional, pastry chef, and my wife Amber Hinshaw. Hello. First time guest on the podcast. Oh. <laughs> you, sh you should feel special. I do. <laughs> so you've done food writing. Yes. What came first, food writing or the comic writing? Uh, uh, comic writing. Okay. Yeah, I actually, I wrote Chef's Kiss five years ago, and I only started really food writing in earnest about a year and a half ago. Um, oh my gosh, maybe closer to two years now? Time has no meaning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No meaning. At least a year ago is when I started. <laughs> Started food writing uh, in earnest for a few different brands, um, Food 52, Savor, Bon Appetit, Epicurious, and now I'm an editor at Epicurious. Uh, you feel like there are different, I mean, I assume there are very different muscles you're stretching when yeah. you're writing the two different yeah. things. Yeah, I mean, the, the work I do for Epicurious is a lot more like reporting, um, you know, finding finding recipes and finding you know voices that have something interesting to say about food and and you know writing articles about that um there's some recipe development too which is its own you know thing and then uh comics you know it's just it's just making up whatever i want with with a co-creator um and and just telling telling the stories that i really really want to tell um you know and it's fiction you know everything i do for food writing it's just real <laughs> right yeah you are working on a graphic novel cookbook, which yes. I find incredibly novel and incredibly useful to someone who burns water. <laughs> uh, what, you know, where did that idea for you come from? Where did that develop from? Um, it, it actually, it started a bit with Chef's Kiss because we do have a couple of illustrated recipes in the back as bonus material. Um, it's two of the recipes that you see made in the book. Um, and we thought it would be fun to have that as, as just kind of a bonus for readers. We have one kind of like pretty easy simple recipe in there and one that's a little bit more advanced um and i liked that process so much that i was like i would do a whole book of just this um and so I, i'm i'm working with a ton of different friends that are all illustrators um so there's a, there's a it'll be kind of like a combination cookbook and art book because you just get like you know people that are working for marvel right now and indie creators um and, uh, and and tons and tons of different styles and palettes and, and, and all that. So it, it's going to be a cool book, I think. So you're working on a graphic memoir as well, yes? Yes. Um, life in the Kitchen, Life as a Writer? Uh, no, quite a bit darker than that. I had a very uh, abusive childhood. Um, and it, it's, it starts with... Um, it starts with the, the day that my father broke, uh, broke and exploded into our house at the middle of the night when I was seven years old to uh, tell us that we had to move overnight. And we fled the country to Mexico because he had just murdered somebody. Uh, and then the end of the book is 14 years later when I come out to my parents while living abroad in Tokyo. That's that's a heavy read. Yeah, yeah. that's going to be a journey. That, that was a journey and is going to be a journey to read. Yeah, it is currently a 350-page script, which is uh, probably too long, so hopefully we'll find an editor to, to trim it down a little bit. But, yeah. That, that, that's what good editors do. Yeah. They trim. Uh, one final little note. When I was looking through your, your CV, you wrote some Murder Hobo? I did. That, so are you a gamer? I am. Um, you know what's crazy is I, I wrote some stories for Murder Hobo, but I 
have actually never done a D and D campaign. Really? Yeah, I had a bunch of friends when I was still living in Maine that wanted to do a D and D campaign, and we all did character sheets and stuff like that. And then something happened where we we couldn't meet up for a while, and then I ended up moving uh, to Boston. And so I just have this character sheet that's like ready to go for <laughs> anybody that wants to play me with me. But <laughs> next time you're down in the area, we, yeah. we, we <laughs> awesome. We're longtime RPG oh, Dungeons and Dragons players. That's awesome. So it would, I would love to have a, an adventure that's that has murder hobos and murder chefs and murder waiters and <laughs> I, yes, everybody just going absolutely berserk. Because total, total murder chaos. waiters are not that far from the truth. Correct. Murder chefs, murder chefs either. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> chefs are at least chaotic neutral, if not chaotic evil, half the time. <laughs> um, no. So my uh, my buddy Joe Schmalky, he and I were um, were kind of coming up in comics around the same time. Like he he was making like an earnest go of it, like maybe a year or so before I started, but probably a couple of years before I started. Um, and he created this whole world around murder hobos. Um, so there's an ongoing series, and then he was doing an anthology series where he had like guest writers, and he and I have been friends for so long, he was like, do you want to write some? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I just got to just, most of my work is really wholesome. Um, this is not. <laughs> uh, and it was fun, it was fun to flex that muscle and just kind of like, just write something totally unhinged. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. One final, the. Is that one of the keys from the, the, the They key. both are. Oh. Yeah, this is the ghost key, key. from Lock and Key, key. which is, um, yep. yeah, I, I work for a Skeleton Crew studio. Oh, you, oh yeah. that's awesome. Lock and Key is one of my favorite books. Me too. Of all time. Yeah, so. um, yeah I, I work for the Skeletons as, as their um, social media manager. Uh, and so one of the perks is every now and then I get tossed a little merch. And I love all of it. And it looks cool even if you don't know what the property is. But oh, I... If it's one of those, if you know, you know things. Exactly. Like, I was so like, it's wait. the ghost key and what other key? This is the ghost, ghost key, key and this is the uh, shadow key. Yeah. Nice. I, yeah. I didn't notice the, the ghost key is smaller, so it took me yeah. a little, but the, the, the shadow key, I noticed, like, oh, I know that. Yeah, I like this because it's really understated. It's just like a cute little sterling silver piece. And again, like, if you know, you know, but it's so small that you're like, that just looks like a cute little key. Well, Jared, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, it was great talking to you, and enjoy the rest of your con. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. W-N-Q-A. Still at FlameCon. Still interviewing creators, and we're here with Josh Trujillo. Josh, how's your FlameCon going? It's going wonderfully. Thank you for having me. We are glad to have you, and the timing could not be more fortuitous. For yesterday, DC's November solicitations dropped, yes. and listed amongst them was your new Blue Beetle graduation day. Can you, for our audiences who have not seen the solicitations, give us a little bit of an elevator pitch on the book? Sure. So Jaime Reyes is the Blue Beetle. A mystical sci-fi scarab fell from the sky and attached itself to his back, and now he is a superhero. So as the Blue Beetle, he's been fighting uh, what demigods, magicians, evil aliens, and the worst threat he's ever faced is about to happen, which is graduation day. So Jaime is deciding what's next for him. Does he want to join the Justice League? Does he want to go to college? What does he want to do? And so that's the biggest question facing him when his real uh, arch nemesis, the Reach, start to reappear. And so that's what's going on. Excellent. And this book has had a less than conventional path to publication. <laughs> to say the least. Um, can you talk about you know DC, the Round Robin and how this book reached the... St- the soon-to-be stance. The 
the short long version is uh, I did a book for Boom Studios called Dodge City several years ago. And from that, the editors got the idea that they wanted to do a Blue Beetle book with me. However, there wasn't that in momentum behind the character at the time. He'd have had a couple runs of series and they just quite frankly underperformed based off what they wanted. And from that, they're like, let's put a pin in it and come back to it. So years later, DC Comics did what's called a round robin competition and various creators basically competed in a bracket style elimination tournament. And the winner would get to have their idea um, produced as a six issue miniseries. So for Blue Beetle, we really, I tried to rally the troops to get as many votes from the fans as possible, and we did great. We, we lost to a Suicide Squad title uh, by my friend Rex Ogle, which is fine. Unfortunately, Rex didn't make it to the finish line either, and the book called Robins did. So uh, that happened, and I thought that was the end of my Blue Beetle career. But a year later, uh, I was contacted about, by DC about doing more. And now we're here, now it's in solicitations, now it's real, now we have a cover with by Rafael Albuquerque and Coley Hamner, and of course my partner in crime, Adrian Gutierrez. And you came in with Adrian as part of the creative team, or was that sort of introduced within the, the process? It was like- Oh you... no, uh, so Adrian uh, was kind of found by my editor just like I was, and he knew from the beginning that Adrian's style was perfect. Uh, for the Blue Beetle. It has a lot of energy, it's very kinetic, and it kind of plays off of this kind of like uh, sci-fi Sentai vibe that Jaime gives off. So he's really an angel to work with. He's based out of Spain, and uh, that kind of flavor really helps with the book as well. Awesome. Um, and you, I mean, you've got a impressive CV from DC, Marvel, Indies, etc. Uh, one of the other things that I read of yours, uh, you were uh, introduced Aaron Fisher, one of the United States of Captain America. During, uh, how, how did that process? I'm always curious with those different Captain Americas. I mean, was that was it? Were you pitched like, hey, we want you to create a Captain America, or did they say, hey, we have this Captain America. Would you like to write a story with this Captain America? It's a little chicken and the egg. Uh, Marvel knew they wanted to create stories with new Captain Americas that kind of reflected what America really is like today. So people from diverse backgrounds and different representations. And so they approached me about maybe coming up with a queer Captain America er character. And so I built off of the foundation that Christopher Cantwell laid for the main miniseries. He wanted to have a character that kind of was from the railway, someone who's kind of a hard luck kid. And I ran with that and created the Aaron Fisher character with Jan Bazaldua. We came up with the design together and we told the first story of Aaron's in Captain, uh, United States of Captain America number one. Any chance that you might be able to revisit the character? Or would you want to revisit the character? Uh, it is a dream come true. I, I don't know much, but I think there's a future for the character for sure. That's, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. Um, so on top of all the other things, you seem to have a lot of, you've done a lot of work with video games. Yes. Uh, as a writer? Uh, yeah, mainly as a writer. I uh, first started at Telltale Games, working on titles like Guardians of the Galaxy, Batman the Enemy Within, or The Walking Dead Season 3. Um, and so from there, I've kind of worked on all sorts of random games. I've worked on Destruction All-Stars, which is a Sony title. I worked on Multiverses, which is now from Warner Brothers. Or, um, let's see, what else have I done? And many more games, mobile titles, and everything in between. And 
one of that, which is sort of treading the line between the two. You wrote the Batman Phase Clan. Oh yes. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> how did that one come? I'm the, a Batman guy. Yeah. That is my thing. Enemy within. Thumbs up. How did Batman Phase Clan come about? Uh, so I was contacted by my editor, and they were looking to produce a tie-in comic for Phase Clan. Phase Clan, for those who do not know, are the world's greatest esports team. There's about 90 of them all over the globe. And so they do merchandise drops like sneakers and TV t-shirts and everything in between. And so they wanted to do a comic book with Batman. And DC was all too happy to let them. So they came with the idea of what if the Riddler was controlling people's minds with a video game console? And what if Phase Clan had to go inside the internet to defeat Batman's villains in order to save the day? And so I ran with that, and we came up with something a little bit Batman Forever, a little bit Scooby-Doo team-up, uh, and it's kind of just like delightfully weird and fun. Uh, it's a comic that has like 22 characters and 20 pages, I think it is. It, it is stuffed. It was wild. The, the, the likening it to Scooby-Doo team-up is a great comparison, because that is the, the same sort of manic vibe. Yeah, for see sure. Where you're coming and, from there, uh, it was interesting because I do have a gaming background, um, but obviously I'm not uh, part of the competitive esports world, so I had to learn a bunch of different terms that they were using. And um, my only regret is not using the term gamer enough. Mm -hmm. One of the panels from the issue is kind of a meme now. It's Mr. Freeze where he's like, uh, "Did Batman really think a gamer could stop me?" And so you can just imagine people placing that in random times in their discords. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that screams internet. And on top of video games, you wrote uh, some stuff for Rolled and Told, which is this, for those out there who didn't read it, this sort of comic-sized gaming like, tabletop-y yes. thing. Are you a tabletop gamer? Too? I'm a big tabletop gamer. Oh. I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons for uh, over 20 years. And yeah, yeah right uh, we're high-fiving right now. And so... Um, you know, I have always been running the games. I've always been the dungeon master. And I even produced a series of anthologies called Death Saves that are all about fantasy gaming characters and how they're killed. So this was like a chance to like do a legit grown-up story. So I got to tell a cool adventure about orcs, kind of shine a new light on them. Um, but Rolled and Told was amazing. The editor, Christina Steen-Stewart, really knocked it out of the park. And... Um, Former guest of the show? Yeah, big <laughs> fan. Uh, so, yeah, it's been fun. I hope we're going to do more death saves probably in 2024. I hate to have to plan these things so far in advance, but the last one had about 100 people involved. So it's 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 hurting cats on a whole new level. So you've always been the DM? All, almost always. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know some very talented DMs now that they actually let me play. And when I play, I play the most straightforward character imaginable. I'm like, I'm going to be the barbarian. Point me where I'm going. I'm going to hit it. You know, as someone who usually DMs and what he doesn't is the one who has to herd the cats of the rest of the party, mm -hmm. I understand. I'm usually the fighter or the rogue who's just like, let's, let's we're here for a job. Let's just do, oh, yeah, do the job. As opposed to my friends who are just the best, worst. That's how it is. It's, it's order and chaos, and you get to choose which side you are. And usually, I, if I'm the player, I'm chaos. If I'm the, the game master, I have to be order. Yeah, I, I could not see chaos as a DM. It would end poorly for, I think, everyone involved. Uh, so, final question, because this is leaning into my particular wheelhouse. Oh, sure. You recently wrote an Alfred 
story yes. for Batman Urban Legends, which I I loved and I especially love because Alfred is you know currently dead in the main continuity, so we're not getting much Alfred. Yes. What is it about Alfred? What does that character bring to the Batman mythos, to the universe that appealed to you? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, what appeals to me about Alfred is I wanted to tell a story um, kind of about aging and kind of about that about Bruce confronting Alfred's mortality in some way. Because I think Alfred has always been kind of that that steadfast protector, that caretaker. And I think it's interesting to have Bruce kind of come to terms with the idea that that might not be a permanent thing. Um, obviously, the story was told after Alfred passed away, so it's kind of an interesting flashback to do. Um, but I got to use my favorite my favorite villain, the ventriloquist, and I got to introduce a new villainous character to the the Gotham City Rogue. So I'm excited for that. Uh, no, I just I just love the character. He's so capable. I think people write him off a little bit. It's just being the butler, but that new Pennyworth show, and even I think that Gotham series had a lot of chances for Alfred to shine. Well, Josh, thanks for stopping by and talking to us. Uh, oh, of have course, a great rest of your con. Yeah, thank you for thank you for talking to me. Thank you. W-N-Q-A. We're here sitting down with Cat Calmier. Yes. How was your FlameCon going? Oh, so well. I, you know, I've never done this convention before, so it, I mean, having a queer convention in general, I think is so cool, and I've just heard so many great things about it, so to be here and exhibit, I actually haven't even visited the con, because originally we were like, oh, let's just visit, and then we got a table, and we're like, oh, cool, we can exhibit. It's just such a cool thing. We just did New York Pride, like, in June, so it was, like, kind of a cool follow-up to that. Absolutely. Uh, so right now, uh, you have the next issue of one of your series, yes. uh, Dancer, up on Kickstarter, mm-hmm. running right now. Uh, Want to give our listeners the elevator pitch on the book? Of course, yeah. So she's a dancer slash assassin. When she was little, she witnessed her parents being murdered in front of her and never dealt with that trauma until now. We're up to the penultimate issue of that comic book, so uh, only... Uh, two more which is really exciting so that kickstarter is up until like beginning of september i believe so then we're wrapping it up soon great uh, so you run 11 successful kickstarters right yeah. number, correct yeah uh, and that's that is pretty dang impressive thank you uh, between dancer uh like father like daughter slice of life by visibility uh, what have you learned over those campaigns that makes for a good Kickstarter? Ooh, so much. Uh, what's so fun is that I actually am part of the advisory council for Kickstarter now, which is really cool. And also I do Kickstarter consulting. So as I I learn from other people's projects too, because like I, when I help them out, I'm like, oh, cool. That's what works for them. This is what works for us. And I would say, honestly, like from the beginning, like if you've never done Kickstarter before, I would say just having a really good thumbnail. I see like campaigns that are really good, but the thumbnail it could have been better and then that could have gotten more backers or their title is not that exciting like usually i always recommend to have the genre and like really try to showcase okay what is this book and then uh the 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 log line and tell people what is it about you know because that's the first thing when they see on the page is those three things so they you have to convince people to click and a lot of people and again, a fault of my own too, I'm sure when I was beginning, is like, oh, you start out with saying, oh, I'm Kat, you know, this is who I am. But maybe people don't know who Kat is, like they're more interested in figuring out what the project is. So it's just the layout of the page, I think is so important. And 
for me personally, what I've learned, I feel like, again, every Kickstarter is something new. And if you're not learning something new, I think that's the problem. You know, you have to really, really take every campaign and, and take a lesson from it. Do you have a Kickstarter fan base across all of these different uh, projects? Or is there almost discrete, like the people who just come for Slice of Life, who just come for Dancer? Mm -hmm. I would say it's a mix of both. So there's definitely people, like, you can actually look through backer kit and see, uh, okay, who came from where? And for the dancer, it was interesting. I thought maybe there'll be a lot from Buy or uh, from Slice of Life because those have a lot of backers. But a lot of it came from Like Fall Like Daughter, which is a book I haven't launched in a, a while, which we will be launching again soon. But, like, you know, I haven't had an issue in, like, two years, and a lot of those people came from the dancer. So that was really cool. So... I think it depends on the book, honestly. And we always get new backers. It's just a whole mosh posh of different things. And you mentioned by visibility, which mm -hmm. your second campaign on that wrapped not too. Yeah, it was long like uh, oh man, when was it? I think it was June. It was like yeah. June to July. I lose track of all the things I backed. Me too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was an anthology. Yes. Uh, how do you how do you go about? curating an anthology? Oh, good question. We're actually doing that right now with uh, our hair anthology. So we have that ending August 28th is when submissions are over. And yeah, we we have a submission form and we tell writers, write a script and you know, if you get chosen, you'll be part of the anthology. Obviously everyone gets paid in this anthology when they're chosen. And for artists, they get to show their portfolio. And um, we get a lot of people from that. I won't say we get everyone from that because sometimes we'll be like, oh, I really want this person to be in it. We'll talk to them. And that especially comes from an artist's point of view where I'm like, I have these 10 artists in my list I really want to work with. Let's see if they're free. And sometimes they have a little bit more time in an anthology because it's like, oh, it's four pages. You want to do this. Like a good example, like we got Chris Sheehan who's worked on some uh, uh, Something is Killing the Children, the spinoff. And then we had Lisa Sterl, who's been doing a lot of stuff. So like, we wouldn't have been able to get them if it was a 22-page book. But for an anthology, for four pages and have like someone else color it, it was easier to get them on board. One of the books that you're kickstarting physically is mm -hmm. Slice of Life, yes. which was is a uh, webtoon. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by that that scroll and the way webtoons work. Yeah. And as someone who's working in both traditional physical comics uh -huh. and in that webtoon, how do you approach the scripting differently with the scroll versus the the, the, the traditional, traditional sequential? Yeah. Honestly, not much because our artist actually does originally do it in sequential. So she draws it like it's a regular comic book. And because it's webtoon, I think the only big difference in the writing process is that a whole issue, let's say, is 22 pages for a comic. A chapter for us is probably like eight pages. So, you know, we could either do a lot more because there's a lot of chapters we could do or there's a lot less we could do. It's like, okay, you know, just it's a different size of that regard. But the scrolling actually comes from our letterer. So he breaks it up after and makes it into the scrolling. Like, as writers, we have to be aware that people are scrolling. So maybe like a page turn doesn't matter as much and things like that. But... We actually start with sequential, and then we go to the page turn. Uh, we go through the scrolling. That's fascinating. That's yeah. the letterer who does the break. Yeah. I would have, I, I, I didn't know how I pictured it, but I, I wondered if somebody just scripted on, like, a, a, a little, like, yeah. scroll or digital equivalent. That's really interesting. I'm sure there's uh, other webtoons that probably do have their artists do it, or maybe they are the artists themselves so they could break it apart. But the letterer we have, Garth Mathams, he 
actually is a writer for an actual uh, webtoon original, which was Witch Creek Road. And we were just we just talked to him for some advice. And we we're like, hey, we're making a webtoon. W- you know, what are some things we should know? I was like, yeah, we're looking for a letter because I know maybe they'll be the ones breaking apart. And he's like, I could be a letter. I was like, that would be amazing. And that's how we work together. So. <laughs> it's always great when those stories of how these teams come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you said you, you're you planning on another volume of Like Father, Like Daughter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are. Honestly, it's been in the can for a while. It's just been because we have had so many other campaigns. It's like, all right, what comes to be precedent? But issue eight is a huge issue. Changes everything. And I'm very proud of it. I, I, it's going to probably come out early 2023 just because of so many projects. But it has been done. And then we'll do a trade. I have issue nine being worked on right now. So it's still something we have. It's just uh, a little slower at, at this point. And it's not about production, honestly. Sometimes it's about, like, release schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so and one more issue. Is, is Dancer a four-issue miniseries? Yeah, four-issue miniseries. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I always say this is honestly the one series where I'm like, I kind of don't want to have a sequel of it. I, I won't say never, has say never, but I feel like the ending very much speaks for itself. So right now it's a four-issue miniseries. Again, I can't say I'll never do a sequel, but as of right now, I want to keep it to be that four issue miniseries. I think it ends uh, on a on a surprising note. Fascinating. Yes. And finally, I'm just also curious, one of your campaigns was for uh, enamel pins. Yes. From uh, using uh, by visibility mm-hmm. with the Bivisibility logo and cute little animals. Mm-hmm. What, I assume, and I maybe, maybe haven't done the analytics dig, but yeah. as a person whose day job is as an analyst, I'm fascinated oh, by the idea of, was it, if you looked at it, was it mostly people coming from the by visibility campaigns? Were there people? I, yeah, they were mostly coming from the by visibility campaigns. But then there was a lot of like stragglers where it's like they just wanted pins, you know. What's so interesting about the pins in general is that like we made them not really for the Kickstarter. We got that because we just wanted to make the money back for how much we paid for them. But really, we did it for Comic Cons because they're like sometimes you're at a con and you're like they don't want comics. They're like okay you know what do they want and then we saw a lot of people love pins so we're just like there you go i'm seeing your pins right now but it's true like so many people are like oh that's cool because you don't need to like comics to buy a pin so we that's why we did it honestly and yeah the kickstarter is very different from it um it was just it was a whole different beast honestly because like we're so used to doing comics so but it was successful i'm very happy with it we're gonna actually be doing uh, you know get an exclusive here but we're doing uh slice of life pins as well uh so we'll we'll have that so, uh, so are there any other new projects that you're working on that you can comment on? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I can at least comment on the hair, hairology. So we'll be having that in early 2023. The book will be released on Kickstarter. So we're very excited about that. We are still putting together teams because, again, submissions are still open right now. We have another anthology that's coming up. I don't want to say exactly what yet, but I will say it's in the vein of what we've done in Kickstarter before and really put it on its head, which I'm very, very excited about. Well, we thank look you. forward to seeing it. Kat, thank you for thank your you. time. Thank you. Appreciate enjoy it. Enjoy the rest of your flame color. Thank you. W-N-Q-A. Uh, I'm here with Steve, who's part of the organizing committee of FlameCon. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Steve, how is yeah. the con treating you at this point? <laughs> the con, um, you know, they always say labor of love because um, it is tiring, but we don't do this because we like Mercedes. We do this because thousands of people have told us it means something to them and it's good for the community and that's what we're a non-volunteer nonprofit that's what we do right this is through geeks out yes the parent org we're a 501c3 nonprofit excellent uh so 
this this is the first FlameCon out of the pandemic times. Correct. We did two years of digital. This is the first in-person since 2019. Yes. What did y'all sit back and try to think out when you were planning bringing this back physically? What, what process did you all go through? I mean, that's... I'm sure any event organizer out there or convention organizer out there will, will commiserate. For a lot of it, it was, we don't know. Um, we didn't know what the rules were, what the laws were going to be. We, we could plan for, we did plan for an in-person convention in 2021, and then it still wasn't better, and the laws are awful, and we had to punt it again, and we're, there's contracts to, to juggle, there's uh, budgets to extend over years, and you cannot do IRL events. Um, but planning for 2022 FlameCon has been the strangest experience in FlameCon history. It's rewarding in some ways. We've learned so many cool new, like, tricks and intricacies um, and ways to navigate changing waters it, it taught us to be adaptable if you if you can't adapt you, you don't survive and it you I mean you have a vax mandate you have a mask mandate yes uh, was it ever cons was was that a moving target or did you just sort of go in and said kind of regardless of what the, the rules of the law are at this point, we want to have these for the sake and safety of all the people coming in. The want was always there. The whether or not we could was only was only just recently determined because we are still subject to all state and national laws and local city laws. We could put a mandate, but the parent business could say no. The, the city could say no one can mandate it. So we had always intended to continue a mask mandate because we are still in a pandemic. We have ways and learned ways to exist in large communal spaces now, like quarantining. Uh, we've always wanted to be safe. We've always um, prioritized accessibility. And if you, if um, our patrons have um, immunocompromised situations, like they still can't come, and that hurts us. So we're letting people who are participating in our community for the first time do a mix of I, um, IRL and digital paneling. Every morning, our entire staff starts with a big old COVID swab. We always look for an eye for accessibility, and that includes covering uh, COVID protocols. When it came to guests, I mean, cons have started opening up, and we've, we've seen the sort of regular sweep of conventions this year, and A, the, the various mask mandates, and things have varied wildly, as I've been to a few. So have I. Uh, yeah. But how was finding guests? Did you start, was it the same sort of schedule of booking guests that you had before the pandemic? Or did you start earlier? Did you start a little later? We started later because we weren't even sure we could have the convention. So we had, once we got the green light saying, it's go, this, these are the, the confirmed dates, we started booking it. We, we lost almost four months of planning time. We usually start, right, like we're starting 2023 two, in two days. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> I... I, I... More power to you. Yeah. Uh, and we all have, like, full-time day jobs. So this is day job, full-time work on top of our full-time work. Right. And so, I mean, you started booking later, mm -hmm. but was did that make finding guests trickier? Or were you still able to sort of, people were receptive because I know this con, I've been to this con before, that kind of thing? That one. We're a little spoiled, um, considering we are not out for a larger corporation. We're only out to build a community. We're only out to build the relationships with people who are the same. So FlameCon to most people is a haven, a safe space, a, a place that they can uh, be openly unabashedly themselves, including the big comic creators, the bigger names that are queer in Marvel and DC. 
they come to FlameCon, I mean, yes, they make great, um, uh, I guess, um, uh, contributions from their tables. But FlameCon is just as important to bigger names as little names if it's a safe space and a comfortable space. We're spoiled, and I like that. What what drew you to FlameCon? Like, how did you get involved? I'm actually one of the originals, not of the Geeks Out, of FlameCon. I, my first FlameCon was FlameCon 1. I joined Geeks Out a few months before that. I was adrift in New York City, young, newly queer, or newly out at least, uh, navigating relationships badly, and I just thought, I always do better with structure. Let me insert myself into some kind of good structure that will put me out into the places and people I want to be with. I actually found Geeks Out when I was at PAX East in, in uh, Boston. I was like, oh wow, they're New York City based, so I, I, start, I joined. Um, can I insert a little uh, ramble myself? Please. Um, I, the, uh, about a few days after I sent a, a feeler email out to them joining, I found them in Boston. I'm in New York City. My coworker emailed me at home, and I was like, oh my god, something burnt down at the office or something, because he only ever does that if there's a fire. He's, he emailed me. He's like, "Did you ask to join my nonprofit?" Turns out the guy I sat next to runs a nonprofit I I uh, found in Boston. So that's my little small world story. So after that, we FlameCon One was right around the corner. I wasn't the original brain behind FlameCon One, but um, I'm I'm a graphic designer, so I saw um, ways we can improve the uh, the layouts, the designs, like maps and things like that. Because I do event planning with my work too. It's part of the graphic design field. Um, so from there, I went from assistant art director for FlameCon 1. Um, they drew me into there. We hired our photographer that year. Uh, we got married last year. Muzzle. <laughs> I met my husband through FlameCon. Oh, so FlameCon 2, I became the art director. FlameCon 3, I became the chair of the entire convention. I did that all the way through uh, the last FlameCon in 2019. We've since uh, gone back into more of a collective committee with Nick Katow and Kevin Gilligan heading it and me giving more support role. But I'm still... Out there doing the work. That's great. I, I love the, the idea of the, a safe space of a con that everyone can just be themselves is something. We see so much about toxic fandom. It's how does it feel to be part of something that is the opposite of that, of, of this inclusive space? Uh, I mean, I, I can give you like the, 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 the saccharine. It gives me the warm fuzzies, and it does, but. Um, there's almost something subversive in being openly queer. It's um, We're giving a big middle finger to people who say, it's just a joke. It's just boys being boys. It's just, uh, you, you gotta get a th thicker skin. It's like, you see, we can do all this cool stuff and still respect each other's bleeping individuals and human beings. We don't have to belittle someone else to make ourselves feel better. We can create a giant convention that people feel happy and excited about without including content that denigrates other people. So, what's your fandom? What is your what is your, the thing that you dig? I am a gamer. I mean, uh, I do love my comics and I love all my anime, my sci-fi, but gaming is my passion. Video, tabletop, both. Mostly video. I've been delving into tabletop. Like uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill has become so uh, enamored in my brain. I made my own um, homemade version of it, like a hand-carved and sanded wood box, homemade omens and pieces. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, so finally, especially because uh, you know, can you give us the you know the information on how people can get involved with Geeks Out, FlameCon. 
we are always accepting volunteers, and we accept volunteers from all over the country. You can go to our website at geeksout.org. Um, you can find the volunteer uh, information there, or flamecon.org. We're one. We're two sides of the same coin there. There is volunteer information there. We, if you want to help us and be part of a larger queer geeky community, we want to know you. Well, thanks so much. Uh, we're this is Saturday night or evening. I'm wrapping up for the night, but it's been a great, great day and. I hope that the rest of the con works out just as well for you. Me too. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. Uh, P.S. Matt and Will, sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the Forceworks character Sentry was apparently part of Combo Man. WMQA.